Happy New Year, and welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode, the first of 2018, features our annual discussion of the top economic policy issues as we look ahead into the new year. Also, you'll find out what's happening in Congress and hear another installment of our Ask an Expert feature. If you have questions for one of our experts, send it to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio recording, I'll play it on the air along with the answer. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. All right, the economy. My guest here in the studio today is Ted Geyer, the Vice President and Director of Economic Studies and the Joseph A. Peckman Senior Fellow. Ted, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. It's great to be here, Fred. This is now turning out to be an annual tradition for us, so I'm I'm glad we're continuing it. That is fantastic, and thanks again for being here. So as 2018 starts, Ted, what would you say is the good news about the U.S. economy? Okay, I can go through the good news. I'm an economist, or sometimes known as the dismal scientist, so I can do the bad news. And I'm happy to caveat it all, which is another terrible tendency of economists. But overall, if I'm looking at the good news for where we are right now, We are looking at better growth than we had earlier in the post-recession period. So I said that carefully because it's not extremely strong growth, but if you broadly look at it since the recession ended, we've been growing roughly at 2.1%, our real GDP growth. This year was higher than that. Mid-twos in the last two quarters were around 3%. So that's good news. That's a little bit more economic growth. If you look on a global perspective, we're not alone. The global economy is looking strong. Very few countries now are in recession, with the typical caveat that it's always hard to predict these things, but the predictions for the coming year are that very few countries face a significant risk of recession, so that's good news as well. And I should have listened to what we spoke about last year to see how good or bad my forecasts were, so I may have been saying this last year as well, but job growth was strong this year. Not as many jobs added as the year before, but you would expect that as you sort of continue to dig out of what happened in the recession. The labor market continues to tighten, so you wouldn't expect as much job growth. But still very strong job growth, about 175,000 jobs per month, which is strong, and therefore an unemployment rate that has been steadily declining to 4.1%, which is historically a fairly low unemployment rate. It all feels very good. And I remember I spoke in the summer with two of your economic studies colleagues, Jay Shambaugh and Ryan Nunn of the Hamilton Project. And we talked about the closure of the jobs gap, the number of jobs it would take to, I guess, replenish with natural growth, the jobs lost during the Great Recession. So that was a great sign. And it sounds like there are a lot of good signs in the economy these days. Yeah, I think that's right. If I were to talk about the closing of the jobs gap, there's two things you would also look at. The decline in the unemployment rate, I think it's important to remind listeners that the unemployment rate is how many people don't have jobs divided by how many people are seeking jobs. And so what's left out of that is people who are not seeking jobs. And in large degree, that makes sense. Retirees, people going to college, they shouldn't count as unemployed. But there is this issue of labor force participation, people who have decided they're not employed, but they're not looking. And if you restrict the focus on prime age, in particular prime age men, so mid-20s to mid-50s, so not typically people who are getting educated or in retirement, we have seen over the years a steady decline in the participation rate for those number of men. So the unemployment rate is low. I think it's fair to say, referencing what my colleague said, that the jobs gap is closed and that we are at what we would call among economists full employment. But that has that little caveat that there are people out there who are not in the labor force. And if you look at U.S. men of prime age in particular, the decline in their participation has been rather stark. 
especially relative to other advanced countries, we've declined more precipitously. So something has happened in the U.S. that has led to men dropping out of the labor force altogether. Now, the job market has been doing fairly well. You've seen a flattening of that, so not a continued decline of their participation rates, a little bit of an increase for women. But it's still, I think, a cause for concern. And certainly if all those men were to come back into the labor force, there would be more room for more job growth and closing that gap further. This puts me in mind of something you did tell me in either the last episode we did like this or the one even before that, that struck you as a bad thing that was happening. And that was research by Deaton and Case Mm -hmm. on the increased mortality of a particular demographic of Americans and more specifically white males. Mm -hmm. And I saw some study recently that said that is still moving apace. And that seems like it kind of interacts with the declining labor force participation. So I do recall we talked about it. I can't remember when we did. Anne Case and Angus Deaton wrote a shocking article on this a few years ago. I would recommend to your listeners their follow-up article, which we published here at Brookings last March, where they go into a little bit more detail on what they call deaths of despair. And deaths of despair are deaths due to overdose, due to alcohol consumption, or suicide. And the original paper showed a shocking increase in deaths of despair, particularly among middle-aged whites. I think their later work and further work has shown, and there was an article just recently on this, that the trend is not limited to middle-aged whites anymore, and certainly not just to men. So there's been a steady increase in the mortality rate from overdoses for blacks, for example. And the numbers are just shocking. I mean, so talk about the bad news stories on this a little bit. But from overdoses, I think, you know, it takes a while to get concrete numbers on this, but we're looking about 65,000 overdoses a year, which is a tremendous amount, more than traffic fatalities, a higher mortality rate from overdoses for people under 50 than from anything else. And then we can't forget about alcohol. And I think even there, it's even more, probably closer to 85 or 90,000 deaths a year from alcohol. And the trends are all in the wrong direction also. So we can talk about economic growth. And I'm an economist, so we can talk about what those numbers mean or don't mean. But there is something else out there. Economic GDP doesn't capture everything. And so the sense of belonging, of meaningfulness, of agency, of happiness, something is negatively affecting a swath of our population, I think, as reflected in these deaths of despair, which I think to say their cause for concern is an understatement. They are really terrible data. Well, let's stick with the theme then of the economic bad news. What are some of the other trends that you see that trouble you in the economy right now? So I have to be careful, again, of playing to type as an economist on the one hand versus on the other hand. Uh, Some of my good news stories, maybe they're moderately good news or moderately bad news. So yes, growth is up. But if you looked at the historical trend in the United States, historically over 170 years or so, the trend is 3% growth. And so what that means, if you're going to have 3% growth, is sure, you have recessions, but then after recessions, you have what we call catch-up growth. If you want an average of 3% growth, then when you have recessions, those need to be followed by periods of above 3% growth, in the order of 4.5% is typically what it's been. So here we are many years past our very deep recession, and we're celebrating the good news of 2.6% growth this year as opposed to 2.1%. It's still nowhere near 4% growth. So growth is still relatively slow. Other kind of mixed stories there, getting back to the labor market, as we said last year, as we probably said the year before, and as I'm saying this year, we have seen pretty impressive job growth now for, you know, something like 85 consecutive months, which is a record. Yet, you don't see a lot of upward pressure on wages. So it does seem like every year we say this is the year where the labor market is so tight that you can actually see wages going up as employers struggle to find workers. 
But the year just passed had some wage growth, but the wage growth, if anything, was a little bit down from the year before. And so that's obviously not a great story. I would put that in the bad news story as well. And then, as I said before, the concern about labor force participation rates for prime age men, I think, is also something of a concern. One point, and I'll flag this because this is something here at Brookings we've spent a lot of time focused on through our Brookings papers on economic activity and more recently with our Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. It is the question of are we capturing these numbers well? What are they measuring? And so to step back a second, the story I'm painting is a story where we keep adding a decent amount of jobs, an impressive number of jobs, but our growth isn't strong. So if you put those together, how can we keep adding these more and more workers but not see more and more higher and higher growth? The implication is our workers aren't very productive and our productivity levels are not what they used to be. Our productivity growth is not what it has been in recent decades. And the reason I bring that up is, one, that is central, that you can only grow so far as the productivity of your workers grow. And two, it leads to a very active debate. Is it the case that with all the modern technologies that we see ourselves exposed to, that they're just not translated into productivity, more productive workforce? Or is it the case that there's something wrong in the measures that we're using that we're missing some benefits to people that are just not captured? I have to present it with humility because it is the base fundamental question that economists should know is how's the economy doing? And we do have measures to measure how the economy is doing, but there is a very active debate on how accurate those measures are. I think that's a fascinating question because the first Friday of every month, we breathlessly await for the Bureau of Labor Statistics to put out their jobs numbers, and then there's a lot of commentary on that. And then when they put those numbers out, they always revise earlier numbers. And in this day and age of contention about facts, it seems more important than ever that we try to arrive at a common understanding of what the measures are. Yeah, and I think that's right. And so it was a useful lesson for everybody to know that we are dealing in statistics. And so statistics have an innate uncertainty. And even when you talk about labor market statistics or any statistics, there are seasonal attributes to it. So you want to make sure that you're de-seasoning or you're accounting for the fact that some activity is going to go up in certain seasons and down in certain seasons. So it's a very complicated and precise process. There's perhaps a little kind of more fundamental issue here. And this gets into when we measure basically the size of the economy, real GDP. And I say real GDP because you want to know how much economic activity is out there, how much people are benefiting from this economic activity, but you need to account for inflation. If I buy a certain number of apples each year and the price of those apples go up, I have not gained in welfare. Those are more expensive. If the quality of the apple has gone up, so that price increase is affecting the quality of the apple, well, then I could be gaining in welfare. So you need to be able to account for what are the increases in price through more expensive inputs, for example, in production versus increase in price from quality adjustments. This has always been a problem. When we look at uh, data in the 1960s, you have a new model car come out. How do you know how much of that is a price increase due to inflation? How much of it is just a better car? The question is, with the fast pace of technology and technological innovations, you have quality improvements and entirely new innovations that are coming on now. So whether or not we're measuring the economy, I think everyone always says these are imprecise measures, and it's understandable that we're going to mismeasure. The question is, are we mismeasuring by more? than we used to, because we're just trying to get a gauge of how we're doing. And it's a difficult question. Think about a smartphone. Think about the year before a smartphone when you were carrying whatever we were carrying back then, whether it was a flip phone or a PDA or you name it, and then one day you have a smartphone. This is a lot more expensive than your flip phone, but it's a totally different thing. 
And so how do you account for what that is and what the quality improvement to that is very, very challenging. And then for each subsequent model, there are advancements. And so separating out what are the quality improvements from what are the price increases is extremely challenging. I tend to be in the camp that productivity is down because productivity is down, not because we're mismeasuring it, but I think it is a very intensely debated subject, which is why, as a group, we are scrutinizing it so heavily. Let's take a quick break to hear about what's happening in Congress from Molly Reynolds, a fellow in governance studies at Brookings. She addresses the unfinished business in Congress and the effect of key changes in the Senate. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies program at the Brookings Institution. Happy New Year from cold Washington, where this month's update of what's happening in Congress bears a strong resemblance to last month's. In the last week before their holiday recess, congressional Republicans completed action on their tax legislation, providing the party with a signature legislative achievement in the first year of President Trump's administration. But getting that bill done on an aggressive timetable came at the expense of action on a range of other issues. Congress has yet to enact a measure funding large parts of the federal government for the rest of the fiscal year, relying again on a temporary bill that expires on January 19th. Members haven't even agreed on changes to caps on overall discretionary spending for defense and non-defense programs, and making that choice about the overall size of the federal pie must come before the chambers can decide how to divide up that pie for the rest of the year work on long-term reauthorizations of the Children's Health Insurance Program, the Flood Insurance Program, and certain government surveillance authorities also remains unfinished. Add in the ongoing debate about whether and how and when to adopt legislation protecting undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children, and Congress is in for a hectic several weeks. The basic negotiating dynamics remain the same as they were before the holidays. Any deal needs some Democratic support in order to break the threat of a filibuster in the Senate, And if House Republicans are sufficiently divided such that they cannot pass a measure through the lower chamber without help from across the aisle, that increases Democrats' leverage. While the agenda and basic terms of debate remain largely the same, the membership of the Senate has seen two key changes since the holidays. Doug Jones of Alabama took his seat after winning a December special election, and Tina Smith of Minnesota was sworn in after the resignation of Al Franken. With Jones replacing Republican Luther Strange, the Republican majority in the Senate is one seat narrower, just 51 seats to the Democrats' 49. The effect of this change will be greatest in two areas, nominations and certain budget bills. That's because in most cases, legislation that moves to the Senate still needs to overcome the threat of a filibuster. We would expect the task of getting nine Democratic votes for something will look largely similar to what the task of getting eight did before Jones's election. That is to say, difficult in a highly polarized chamber, especially in an election year. On nominations, however, the smaller majority could prove important. In 2017, about 15% of confirmed nominees were approved with only Republican votes, and that doesn't account for any nominees who didn't come to the floor for fear of failure. One fewer vote could make confirmations more difficult for Republicans. The same is true for certain budget bills. If Republicans are interested in using the filibuster-proof reconciliation process to enact policy change, whether on health care, welfare, additional tax changes, or any other eligible policy areas in 2018, they must first adopt a budget resolution. While that measure also cannot be filibustered, the last time a Republican-controlled Congress completed work on a budget resolution in an election year was 2000, 
when they had 55 senators in their caucus. Smith's appointment, meanwhile, brings the number of female senators to a record 22, 17 Democrats and five Republicans. A number of political scientists have worked to document how the presence of women in Congress matters for how the chamber operates. Work by Michelle Swers argues that gender, in combination with party affiliation and individual ideology, affects which issues senators choose to prioritize. In work on the House of Representatives, Craig Volden, Alan Weissman, and Dana Whitmer demonstrate that women can be more effective than men at advancing the bills they sponsor through the chamber, but only under certain conditions. Women legislators in the minority party have been more effective than their male counterparts in recent decades, but the same does not hold for members of the majority party, likely in part because of polarization, which prioritizes certain kinds of contentious politics. In addition to two new members joining the Senate, we also saw one additional senator, Warren Hatch, Republican of Utah, announce this week that he would not be running for re-election. As my Brookings colleague Sarah Binder pointed out this week, Hatch's departure won't do much to address the number of challenges created by a chamber where the average senator is roughly 10 years older than in 1981. Seven octogenarians will remain in the Senate after Hatch's retirement. Assuming the Republicans maintain their majority after the 2018 elections, Hatch's departure will usher in a round of musical Senate committee chairs as he currently leads the powerful finance panel. A leadership-dominated Senate has made chairmanships less powerful than they once were, and Republican rules limiting the length of service of the party's committee leaders has likely weakened the rules further. But plum chairmanships are still coveted by members, and Hatch's decision to retire will shake up the ranks. In an era where much of what gets done in Congress, including what's likely to happen over the next several weeks on spending bills and other legislative priorities, is dominated by negotiations conducted by the so-called Big Four party leaders, it can be easy for the individual rank-and-file membership of the chamber to be overshadowed. But this week reminded us that individual-level changes do matter and can affect what's happening in Congress. Molly Reynolds is the author of the book, Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate. Well, let's walk up to the edge of politics without going over the line just a little bit here. Because I want to ask you about the toolkit that a president has to affect the economy. Now, during the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump railed about the economy and said it was terrible. He also criticized all of the economic data that was coming out. Over the last year, economic trends have seemed to be pretty good, and President Trump has taken credit for it, as all presidents do. Mm -hmm. He's only been in office for one year. What effect does a presidential administration have on the economy? What can they take credit for? What can they be blamed for? And what doesn't really apply to what the president does? That is a tough question to answer with precision. So I'm going to try and give sort of a ballpark answer. I think it is fair to say that when President Trump runs for re-election, he will have an economic record to run on. Undoubtedly, politics being politics, and we all suffer from this, people will see the results through their own personal political prism. But if you were to try and superimpose a kind of an economic theory about what's happening and what policy responses we should have, I could broadly lump them into three categories. So if I look at the post-recession period where growth has been slow, you would have a sizable number of people, economists in particular, who would say growth has been slow because we had this huge recession. The Federal Reserve is limited in how low they can cut interest rates. They can't go below zero. We need more stimulus than what we're getting. And because we have lack of aggregate demand because we're not getting enough stimulus, we're falling short, and that's why you have slow growth. So that's one theory. 
and it takes lots of different forms, but broadly speaking. You have another theory, which gets back to the productivity question we were talking about before, which is people just aren't that productive as they used to be. Maybe it's an indictment of our educational system. Maybe it's just we've run out of things, the low-hanging fruit of technologies to pick. So if you go back, you know, 100 years or early 20th century, you have electrification, you have indoor plumbing, you have all sorts of means of transportation. These are massive productivity-enhancing inventions, and maybe those just aren't here right now. And we also had public education, another, for lack of a better phrase, invention, where you have universal education. And so another theory is we're just not that productive and sort of get used to it, where the new normal is going to be low growth. A third theory for why we were having such a weak recovery is what I would call the death by a thousand cuts theory, which is essentially a supply side argument, which is marginal tax rates are too high. They're providing disincentives for people to work and to invest. To the extent people are trying to be entrepreneurial, there's so many regulations out there that are also kind of limiting their ability to do that. And so that's what's holding back to recovery. So again, this is superimposing very idealistic, ideological view or clarity on what is a very messy world out there. But broadly speaking, the Trump plan is in the third camp. It's taxes and regulations. It's not more stimulus necessarily. It's not lack of productivity, any productivity. So there's not as much human capital development and issues like that. So the policies, broadly speaking, are in cutting regulations and cutting taxes. It's always hard to measure what the effects are, certainly in the short term. But I think when you come to the end of his administration, that's what he will be able to run on. And we should see ramifications of that. And again, I should just point out on all these things, we are talking about the economy. The economy is a narrow view of the state of the world and state of well-being. So there are things you can do to help GDP that might not help human welfare. And that also obviously gets brought into the picture as well. Right. We have a whole set of scholars here devoted to the study of inequality and poverty and, sure. and inclusion and that kind of thing. Well, so if that third theory is where the Trump administration is, we have seen in just the last couple of weeks, Congress passed and he signed a signature legislative achievement, mm-hmm. the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And he has been suggesting and taking credit for the fact that some companies toward the end of the year are giving a lot of their employees increased pay, maybe due to cuts in the corporate tax rate. I mean, do you think that there will be other immediate effects of this new legislation? Well, there's certainly going to be immediate effects. It's a big tax bill. I don't think that we can see anticipatory wage increases. And what I said earlier, we haven't seen huge wage growth. So a lot of the good news story is sort of trend, right? We've had job increases and we've continued to have job increases. We've seen job growth before the Trump administration. We're seeing comparable wage growth now. But certainly this is a large tax bill scored at a $1.5 trillion, depending if you static or dynamic, one to $1.5 trillion deficit increase over 10 years. So this would have some stimulative effects. So you would expect an increase, again, focusing on the narrow GDP numbers, you would expect a small increase in GDP coming this year and probably the following year as well. But any examination of any fiscal policy has to take a longer view, not just a longer view, but a deeper view, what it means particularly for different sectors or for different subpopulations distributionally, and also the longer view of any stimulative effect that it might have from a macro point of view has to face the consequences of also being deficit increasing. And to the extent that we have bills to pay and that our deficits and our long-term debt burden goes up, there's a payback there. It's a payback in the form of obviously we have to raise taxes in the future to pay it. And then also you have this upper pressure on interest rates, which would limit the incentives for investment. So you have to take a longer view on that. Certainly, if you want to take a narrow view, I think you would see 0.2% increase in growth this year. This is rough estimate. And you can look at the macro forecast to get the range of estimates that are out there. 
but you would have some effect from that. I want to direct listeners to check out the recent podcast episode that I did with Adam Looney, a senior fellow in economic studies, on his initial thoughts and analysis about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was really fascinating. I would second that. Everything I learned about taxes, I would say most of it I learned from just talking to Adam Looney. (laughs) Ted, on the regulatory side, can you talk about any specific examples of regulatory changes the Trump administration has enacted over the past year that you think could have a positive effect on the economy? Let me break it up a few ways. One is I think we should talk about the changes in the regulatory process because I think those are big. Within his first week in office, he issued an executive order that required what he called the two-for-one, meaning for every new regulation that one of the agencies would propose, they would have to offset it by deregulating or removing two other regulations. He also, in that same executive order, advised that the OMB would limit the regulatory budget for different agencies. And in the first years, it would be neutral, meaning if they were to propose a certain number of regulations that were estimated to increase the regulatory cost by a certain amount, they would have to find deregulatory actions that would offset that. So it's a very imprecise requirement. Both of those are. There's very hard to measure what counts as a regulation or deregulation, let alone what counts as a regulatory cost. These are hard things to measure. There's also legal prescriptions. You can't just strike down a regulation. That original regulation is in accordance with a certain law, and so you need to be able to go through a whole evaluation and review process and get public notice and come to a finding that's not arbitrary and capricious before you were to remove or to amend a regulation. So there are a lot of constraints on that. By and large, I think they've been deferential to those constraints, understanding the legal necessity of them. But having said all that, I think it's safe to say that the Trump administration has been strongly deregulatory. I think in practice, it takes on two forms. One is there have been, you know, a number 10, 15 high-profile regulations that they've essentially unwound. Some of these were in the proposal stage. Some of these were final but not yet actually enacted. So there's different periods in the pipeline. But if you look at something like President Obama's Clean Power Plan, that thing has basically been rescinded. Now, it was tied up in the courts, and it would have been a while before we saw any effects of that and could have been eliminated by the courts. But in the meantime, they preempted that. There have been other environmental rules as well. There was a very controversial rule uh, based on the Clean Water Act about what counts as navigable waters that fall under the Clean Water Act. And certainly a lot of farmers and ranchers were concerned about, you know, ponds and different tributaries near their land that were going to be subject to federal oversight. That, too, was rescinded by the Trump administration. So I think there's been very high, salient, politically unpopular with some communities, regulations that they've eliminated. Probably the bigger effect is the pace of new regulation. If you look at the rules that they finalized and the pipeline of rules that are in the proposal pipeline going forward, you've seen a break in the trend of regulation. And I think it's more remarkable when you look at the history of the regulatory pipeline and the increase of the federal regulations. It's very hard to discern differences between Republican and Democratic presidencies. Now, again, it's hard to measure what counts as a regulation. People count the number of pages in the Federal Register, which is obviously imprecise. But by and large, there has been a trend break. And so I think these are going to have some effect. I think It's sort of the age-old question of anybody who looks into regulations, what's the effect on the economy? And unfortunately, it's an incredibly uncertain and I would say impossible thing to actually get at, especially when a lot of regulations are also state and local. So put that aside for a moment. But certainly for certain communities, it will have benefits and costs and will have some real effects. Well, let me direct listeners also to check out the regulation tracker 
on the Brookings website that the Center on Regulatory Policy here at Brookings has put together and is maintaining. It's a really diverse and deep look at regulation. You want to say anything else about that? Yeah, I would I would also recommend that they look at that. This is, I think, a great snapshot of where the state of the deregulatory agenda under Trump is. It's not the universe of all regulations or even all deregulations, but as I said before, it's a real way to focus on the key regulations that he's trying or attempting to unwind and where we are in the process. So I think it's a great resource. Now it's time for another Ask an Expert segment. Joshua Miller, a recent college graduate, asked, how do Brookings scholars seek out information that challenges their own biases and assumptions about politics? Who better to turn to for an answer than senior fellow Bill Galston? Hi, my name is Joshua Miller. I recently graduated from Liberty University with a complex double bachelor's in government history and journalism. As a conservative, I listen to Brookings podcasts to challenge my biases and assumptions about politics. My question is simple. How do Brookings scholars challenge their own assumptions and biases? Is there an institutional policy toward that goal? More broadly, what can listeners like me do, besides listening to podcasts, to balance their understanding of the world? Hello, my name is Bill Galston. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies here at the Brookings Institution. I get a lot of questions on a weekly basis, but Joshua Miller's question is one of the best because it goes to the heart of what's wrong with so much political discourse these days and what's needed to put it right. There's something that the social scientists call confirmation bias, and what it means in plain English is that we are more apt to believe arguments and even evidence if the arguments and evidence tend to confirm what we believe. And we create screens or filters either to reduce the importance of arguments and evidence that undermine our beliefs or to screen it out altogether. And so it is really important for people who want to be responsible participants in the public dialogue to expose themselves to the widest possible range of points of view and bodies of evidence as well. There's a reason why when you show up in a court and you're asked to swear an oath that you're going to tell not only the truth but also the whole truth because facts can be true but only part of the broader truth. And if you simply rest on the facts that are most convenient for your side of the argument, you're going to be fooling yourself and you may end up fooling others as well. So what do I do? Well, I try to read as broadly as possible from journals and newspapers and think tanks that represent points of view very different from mine. As it happens, although I'm sort of center-left, I write a weekly column for a conservative-leaning daily newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, and so on a weekly basis, I get exposed to a wide range of negative comments from viewers and frequently followed up by negative letters to the editor. So given that, I'm forced to confront on a very regular basis points of view very different from my own. 
I spend a lot of time in panel discussions with people from points of view very different from mine. I make it a business to show up when invited even to very conservative think tanks. I recently did a panel at the Heritage Foundation, which is one of the most conservative outfits in Washington. It's not always comfortable, but I think it's always valuable. And in one way or another, all of us have to work as hard as we can to get out of our information silos and political silos and cultural silos and in touch with people who think and feel differently. Because if we don't do that, then our national dialogue is going to be, as it now is, a dialogue of the deaf, where people are speaking to and listening to only the sorts of people who are prepared to reinforce existing biases. And that is not good for the country, and it's certainly not good for our politics. Joshua, thanks so very much for your excellent question. I'll be sending you a Brookings coffee mug as a token of my thanks. And thank you also to Bill Galston for stopping by to answer the question. If you want to ask your own question of an expert and have it played on the air, send me an email with an attached question to bcp at brookings.edu. So let's turn to the monetary side. Physical policy is taxes and federal government spending. Monetary side is usually run out of the Federal Reserve. We have a new Fed chair, Jay Powell, taking over from Janet Yellen. Do you think that the Federal Reserve under Jay Powell will take a different direction? And if so, what effect will that have on the economy? Yeah, I have to confess I'm not a big Fed watcher. I think there's a whole industry of Fed watchers out there. So at a high level, my sense is Jay Powell is more or less in line with his soon-to-be predecessor, Janet Yellen, who I think has done a fine job. I would not expect any sharp changes in federal policy. If you look at market predictions of rate increases in the year to come, it's not like you've seen some sort of decided break in expectations with the announcement that he was going to be the next Fed chair. The highly speculative part, which I really can't answer, is what happens if there is another crisis and how he handles that. Our colleague Ben Bernanke certainly has experience of coming into the position as Fed chair in relatively calm times and then that quickly changing. And a lot of the innovations that happened under his watch were quite innovative and quite creative. And I would have not been able to come close to predicting how somebody could handle that. And certainly a different Fed chair would have gone in a different direction. So I think there's just a great deal of uncertainty about how Powell will handle those kind of situations. But where he is right now, I think it's a little simplistic to say it, but I think it's more status quo than some of the other options or candidates that were considered for the position. Ted, what would you say are some issues in the economy that American people should be paying attention to, but perhaps aren't paying enough attention to? That's a good question. I should have listened to what we said last year to make sure that I'm not beating the same drum over and over again. Let me just freeform hit on a few things. There's an old joke in economics about the economist looking for his keys under the light because that's where the light is, essentially. And so I might be focusing a little too much on just the things that I've been examining lately or have interested me lately. One thing that I think doesn't get enough attention here in Washington, D.C., understandably, thankfully at Brookings, we have people who are focused outside of federal policy in our metro program. But it does seem like when you live in Washington, D.C., when you're economists in Washington, D.C., most of your attention is on federal policy. And we talked a bit about regulation before and the deregulatory efforts. 
I would argue that the most costly regulations, the ones that inhibit growth the most, happen at the state and local level. Those take the form of occupational licensing, which are myriad within states and they're different across states, zoning restrictions, various kind of rent-seeking activities that lead to highly costly projects in local areas. I live in Washington, D.C. We probably have all examples of this. I moved into my current home two years ago. There was an abandoned old supermarket down the street, and it's still an abandoned old supermarket down the street because of sort of the permitting in the neighborhood concerns about mixed-use having a new supermarket, which I would love to have, <laughs> with some more affordable apartments on top as part of the reconstruction. I think those things get underexplored, as I said before, because we live in D.C. and we tend to focus on federal policy. They also get underexplored because they're really hard to measure the impacts. But I do think they have a real effect. If you look closely, if you read your kind of local papers, you'll see more and more of it. And I can't quantify it, but I think it has a big effect on the economy. This is getting into risky areas. I work as an economist by day, and I sort of pretend to be a dilettante psychologist on my spare time. But I do think those things sometimes tend to converge. And it gets back to the productivity question we mentioned before. Some people phrase this as sort of a paradox that we have all these new technologies, but yet our productivity is not coming up. And again, as an amateur psychologist and as a father of three, I tend to see some of the costs of the new technologies. And I think this is something that's going to be presenting more and more. If I went through kind of my own trajectory here, it was an amazement at the ability to get information and things through smartphones and social media and other avenues of getting information. And I'm sitting in the world-renowned communications department at Brookings, so I have to be careful what I say here. I think there's a greater and greater realization that some of these things actually take a toll on our ability of concentration, that they do potentially lead to productivity reductions, at least on some margins, by distracting us. And also, there's a greater question. This gets back to what we were talking about, the deaths of despair. I don't want to overly simplify what is affecting people who are dying of those despairing overdoses and alcohol. But I do think there's something to be said about a world of distraction that actually affects some of your mental health. And this is, again, psychology more than economics, but I think it does have a policy implication. I'll just give one data point on that. Automobiles are getting safer and safer, yet the fatality rate has increased the last few years. And the reason why the fatality rate has increased the last few years is because you have more and more distracted drivers. Uh, using so the, their cell phones. Using their cell phone and texting and all the rest. And so there you have a kind of a great example of kind of the wonders of technology making automobiles safer, but yet human nature being such as it is, the similar technologies are also leading us to do activities that we shouldn't be doing, like texting while driving and all the rest. And there's a policy implication there. You can disable them. So I would maybe put that kind of discussion under the broader umbrella of things that we as economists and everyone else might examine and have greater appreciation for. My final point there is it's only going to get an increase when you have things like the Internet of Things and you have Alexa and I can't even name all the things that come into your home now and that essentially are these digital servants for you. Our integration with technology and with access to information is greater and greater. This is just one economist putting out a call that we shouldn't forget that it's the spaces in our life that in many ways make us who we are and make us, quite honestly, happier and mentally sound. And if we fill all those spaces with information, something is lost. I will stop being a psychologist for now, but you asked me for something out of the box, and there you have it. Well, that was terrific, Ted. Thanks for sharing that. So looking ahead, as an economist again, if you could implement any one policy idea for the economy for this year and looking ahead, what would that be? 
I think I just referred to some that might be on the list. I'm going to guess that last year I told you we should have a carbon tax where we use a revenue-neutral carbon tax, and that's always been something that I think would be smart policy. I think among the economics community, you have broad agreement there. You might have disagreement about how you use that revenue, whether or not to offset corporate taxes, which is probably what I argued last year, or whether or not to use it for spending or through other tax reductions that are more progressive. One, I said that last year, and two, we just went through a huge debate about federal taxes, and you didn't hear nary a word about carbon taxes, so that tells you how popular of an idea that is. I don't know if this counts as one policy. I will go back to what I said before, which is where I think we are under-exploring some problems, and that is on the local regulatory level. I think if you look at what I see as productivity weakness, it is linked to the fact that people aren't as mobile as they used to be. You don't get as much people moving across states as you used to. And so in a very simplistic world, you're in a local economy that takes some sort of shock that leads to a depression, local depression or local weakness in the economy. You look for productive employment somewhere else, you relocate. That becomes a lot harder when the relocation decision is really uneconomic for you, that the rents in the new city are just way too high. I think largely driving those high rents is what I was talking about, the neighborhood near me. People don't want mixed-use housing. People don't want to increase the supply of homes. There are all sorts of local regulations that inhibit the ability to increase the supply of homes, so those prices are artificially high. So I think more attention to that, if I had to kind of bring up my dream policy, that would certainly fall under that umbrella. The caveat there is these are local policies. This is not the federal government. And having coordination across states on things like occupational licensing or zoning or you name it is challenging, but I think it would go a long way. Well, Ted, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. This is always a great way to kick off the new year for the Brookings Cafeteria. It's been great to be here. I look forward to doing it again next year. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.